the uh, story is told of three men who asked the fo- were asked the following thought-provoking question. It says, when your life comes to an end and your family, friends, and co-workers walk by your casket to pay their final respect, what would you like to hear them say about you? And the first man, who was a teacher and a coach, said, you know, I'd like to hear them say that I made a positive impact in the lives of young people, that I was involved in sports to teach values, to teach discipline, teamwork, to teach honesty and integrity, and that those values would carry them through the rest of their life. The second man, who was a doctor, said, you know, I'd like to hear them say I genuinely cared for my patients, that I cared for their well-being, and that it wasn't about money that I got involved in the medical field. The third man, who was a contractor, listened to the other two, thought for a second, paused for a moment, and finally said, well, when my friends and family step step up and they look at me in my casket, I'd like to hear them say something like this. Hey, look, he's moving. <laughs> you know, there are, there are so many jokes and stories about death and dying and heaven and the pearly gates and St. Peter and, you know, and what one, what one must do to gain access into heaven And in fact, if you hear of any, and you want to share them with me, I might be able to incorporate them in the series. But the the whole point of that is this, that there's a sense that we will live forever somewhere, and it has shaped every civilization in human history. For example, the Australian Aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought it was an island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, Polynesians believed that when they died, they went to the sun or to the moon after their death. Native Americans believed in the afterlife, their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. Babylonian legend refers to a resting place of heroes and even hints of a tree of life. In the pyramids of Egypt, the embalmed bodies had maps placed beside them as guides to the future world. The Romans believed that the righteous would picnic one day while their horses grazed nearby. Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said this, The day thou fearest as the last is actually the birthday of eternity. And even though all these depictions of the afterlife differ, the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is belief in life after death. The evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given, innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all that there is. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God has set eternity in the hearts of man so that we have a longing for the person, speaking of God who has created us, and the place, heaven, that he has prepared. You know, the Roman catacombs where the bodies of many martyred Christians were buried contained tombs with inscriptions such as this. In Christ, Alexander is is not dead, but lives. Another inscription said, one who lives with God. A third, he was taken up into his eternal home. Another historian writes, Pictures on the catacomb walls portray heaven with beautiful landscapes, children playing, and people feasting at banquets. In 125 AD, Aristides, who was a Greek, wrote to a friend about Christianity, and he was explaining why this, quote, new religion was so successful. And he wrote this, If any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world... They rejoice and offer thanks to God. They escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. In the third century, Cyprian said, Let us greet the day which assigns each of us to his own home, which snatches us from this place and sets us free from the snares of the world, restores us to paradise and the kingdom. Anyone who has ever in foreign lands long 
to return to his own native land. And he says, we regard paradise as our native land. You know, when I was reading all of these, I thought, you know, these early Christian perspectives sound almost foreign today. Instead of rejoicing with those believers who are ill and maybe one step closer to God's presence, we act as though some terrible fate awaits them. Yet the Bible teaches, as Paul wrote to me, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He also wanted to say, as long as we are home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We would prefer to be away from the body <clears throat> and at home with our Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I go there to prepare a place for you. And he deliberately chose a language or words that we can all relate to and understand. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you, a specific place that we could identify with, a home with many rooms that we would be able to live with our God for all of eternity. And as I read through this, and, and in conversations that I have with many believers today, <clears throat> I'm amazed that I know I've spoken with those who don't look forward to heaven. I've spoken with Christians who even, you know, they, they, they even, for one reason or another, they, they, are, they dread the thought of it. As if to say that their earthly plans are, are more important. Or their earthly plans are even better. Well, you know, I, 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 I don't want to go to heaven now because I'm going to get married. I don't want to go to heaven now because we haven't had our first child yet. You know, I don't want to go to heaven now because, you know, I'm on this fast track of my career. And, man, I got this stuff all lined out. And, you know, I'm up for a promotion. I don't want to go to heaven now because I'm just about ready to get the degree that I've always been trying to get. You know, I, I, I don't want to go to heaven now. We got a trip to Hawaii planned. <clears throat> Are you kidding me? It's like... Can, can I go after? And when I hear these things, I, I just kind of shake my head and I wonder what it is and how this has all happened that we have such a, an appalling view of heaven and that it's gripped so many of God's people. And the only thing that I can think of is that we have been deceived by the enemy. That our enemy, who is the great deceiver... As Jesus said, he is the father of all lies, that when he speaks, he speaks his native language, that he's a liar and a father of all lies. Some of his favorite lies are about heaven. Certainly, some of his favorite lies are about God. In Revelation 13, 6, we're told the satanic beast opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. You think about it, Satan slanders three things, God, God's people, and God's place, heaven. And if you think about it, there's a reason for it. After he was forcibly evicted from heaven, the devil is bitter not only towards God, but towards us in the place that's no longer his. Think how maddening it must be to our enemy to realize that you and I, who have come to faith in Christ, get to enjoy the very presence of God for all of eternity in a place that he has prepared for us called heaven. And so the deception is that it's not as good as God tells us that it is. And it's always been to call into question the reliability of the word of God. Is heaven really everything that God says that it is? Is it really everything that God says that it will be to be in his presence and experience the fullness of joy for all of eternity. And it's very difficult for us in our culture because we're so blessed. Because we do struggle with the things that I just mentioned. You know, Hawaii, could heaven be better than Maui? And, 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 you know, and I'll, I'll just be open and transparent here, is that when I started to work on the outline for this series, 
we had, it was our 30th wedding anniversary, and friends of ours had lined us up for a couple of nights at the Montage in Laguna Beach. And the Montage is a five-star hotel. And I'm sitting on our balcony at this five-star resort, looking out at the ocean, and this beautiful, just unbelievable scenery, and I'm thinking, is heaven much better than this? I mean, this is pretty cool. And then we started to get the bills for, like, our lunch (laughs) and room service. And then I thought, yeah, heaven's a lot better than this. Because you get to enjoy all of this without the bill, you know? But, you know, the deception is there. Think about it. We are told by God to set our hearts and minds on heaven. And yet the devil wants to confuse us. He wants to feed us an unworthy and a dull and a distorted view of heaven. And he knows that we'll lack motivation to tell others about Jesus when our view of heaven isn't that much better than our concept of hell. If we don't understand the seriousness of hell and we don't understand the blessing of heaven, we will not be motivated to reach the world with the word of God. And the deception is to keep us in this state of confusion that somehow heaven is going to be a boring place. As we were sitting around and visiting in our anniversary, you know, I asked the question, what, you know, what, what's your view of heaven? And it's amazing to me when we speak of others, think about it even now as I ask you that, what, what do you picture when you picture heaven? And I think it's from growing up watching cartoons, but it's like heaven is like, you know, laying on clouds, playing a harp, which, you know, you wouldn't do here on earth. And you're going to play a harp and you're going to sing songs and that's kind of our distorted, you know, messed up view of heaven. And so God has put it upon my heart to do a series of messages which focus our attention on what the Bible has to say about death and what all of us have to look forward to the very moment that we die. For some, it will be joy beyond comprehension. For others, it will be pain and sorrow like nothing they've ever experienced in this life. But before we can move towards those as our focal point, before we can appreciate heaven and even an understanding, a greater understanding of hell, we must ask this question, and that is this. Why must we die? Why must we die? In all the memorial services that I've ever spoke at, it's always been fascinating to me to gain an appreciation for the fact that people don't really ask the question, why do people die? If you go and it's for someone that's older, they kind of accept the fact that, hey, he was 70, 80, 90 years old, lived a full life, time to die. Somebody who's younger dies, they go, we don't understand that. You know, a young person, they died, you know, too soon. Or they died before they had a chance to whatever it is that, you know, a person would think. And it kind of shakes people up a little bit, but there's a certain sense that we understand that, you know what, we're all going to die. And so in Genesis chapter 3, we're going to take a look at the reality of our mortality And go back to the basics so that we have a better understanding as to, you know, why do we die? Genesis chapter 3. And we'll pick up the account at verse 1. Where we'll read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. 
For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. We're going to continue to look at the rest of this chapter, but for now, in this passage, we learn of a critical turning point in all of human history, the origin of our terminal disease called mortality. You know, the current death rate is 100%, and unless the Lord returns uh, soon, we are all going to die. And uh, we don't like to think about death, yet worldwide, three people die every second, 180 every minute, and nearly 11,000 every hour. And if the Bible is right, and we believe that it is, about what happens to us after death, it means that more than 250,000 people every day go either to heaven or to hell. 250,000 people. David said in the Psalms 39 verses 4 and 5, He said, God, show me my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made me and my days a mere hand breath. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. He's saying, picture for a moment a breath that comes out on a cold day. And he says that my time here on earth lasts about as long as that breath or that vapor does. That's why James says that our life is like breathing into a mirror. When you get up in the morning and the mirror clouds up and then it clears up, so that's about the extent or the length of our time here on earth in contrast to eternity. And what David was saying to God is this, Lord, show me my life's end and the number of my days. Solomon said that why the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning while the mind of the fool is in the house of pleasure. And he's saying, show me. Could you imagine asking God, show me the end of my life. Show me how many days I have. Will I live another day? Another week? month or year? Do I have two years or five years? Show me how much time I have left. And the reason that he wanted to know was so that he would have a sense of urgency that would change how he lived his life today. If you thought you had a week to live, what would you do differently today? A month, two months. See, it's appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. And the point is this, that since we all know we're all going to die, and there is such a thing as the reality of our mortality, the question that we have to ask of God is this, God, how much time do I have? And what do you want me to do with this time that we're to redeem wisely. What am I doing with this precious commodity called time? You know, God uses suffering and impending death to unfasten us from this earth and to set our minds on what lies beyond. God is using my cancer and my slow deterioration of my physical body to set my mind on things that are eternal. In 27 years that I've been a believer, I can't recall ever sitting or listening or studying under someone who would would teach a series on heaven or on dying or on what to expect. And so God has used this in my own life to set my heart and my sights on those things that are soon to come in my life. How soon? I don't know. And it may be sooner for you than even me. I've lost 
people close to us recently. I shouldn't say I've lost them because I know where they are, but we've lost contact with them. Even as a church family, we have, you know, been separated from those who would come on a regular basis. And as I was preparing and continue to prepare this series, I'm reminded of a young man who died of cancer. His name was Nathan. I'm reminded of another fellow who I visited at City of Hope who died. His name was Pat. I'm reminded of Diane and of Henry and of Gary and Daryl and Tom. I'm reminded of a couple of guys I had an opportunity to minister when I was working with the, uh, with the National Football League, Reggie White, and another friend, a, a guy, a godly man. His name is Sam Mills, and he just went home to be with the Lord this week. 45 years old. And so God is reminding me of not only my own personal situation, but of those that he has brought in contact with us over the last several years. And see, I've spent a lot of time talking to people who have been diagnosed now with terminal diseases. And these people and their loved ones have a sudden and insatiable interest in the afterlife what do we have to look forward to what's next what's coming up and uh, most people live unprepared for death but those who are wise will go to a reliable source and we have one in the Bible we'll investigate what's on the other side and if they discover that the choices that they make during this brief stay in this world will matter in the world to come They'll want to adjust those choices accordingly. And so what I'm hoping to do as we go through this, specifically in this particular passage, is to look at what the Bible teaches about the reality of our mortality and just kind of go through it and look at the uh, application that we have for today. And number one, we see first and foremost the alternatives which Adam and Eve faced. They were given, cho- they were given a choice. And what's fascinating to me is up to this point, Adam and Eve do not know what sin is. They don't have a sin nature. They'd never sinned. They did, however, have options or alternatives. They had choices. They had free will. What were their options? First of all, they had the option of obeying God and believing he knows what's best. To take him at his word and to trust what he said to believe that he's a good and loving God who had their best interest at heart. So when we look at this passage, we see the temptation came as Satan came to them and enticed them into not believing what God had to say. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any of the tree of the garden. And the woman said, from the tree, fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God says, you shall not eat it or touch it lest you die. Well, if you look back at at, at verse 17 of the previous chapter, God said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. He didn't say if you touch it, you'll die. And so right off the bat, we see that one of the schemes or strategies of the enemy is to add to what God clearly has revealed. He said, hey, if you eat it, you'll die. She said, well, if we eat it or touch it, we'll die. And we add more to it. Well, what God said was clear enough. If you eat it, you're going to die. And they had an alternative. They had a choice. They could believe what God said, or they could believe the lie. They could do what they wanted to do, because they didn't want to be told what to do. Or they could just trust that God knew what he was doing, and said, hey, that's what he said. And so we'll trust him, we'll believe him, we'll take him at his word. You know, how many of us today struggle with the same alternatives when tempted? Do we trust God or do we trust in ourselves? There's a way that seems right, but its end is destruction. Because there are ways that are right and there are ways that are wrong. And God determines what they are because he's the ultimate authority. God calls the shots. And either we believe him or we don't. Now notice, they didn't believe God. 
They didn't take him at his word. They bought into the lie. And when the woman saw in verse 6, we see the act, act which caused the fall. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. In this verse, we find the fall of mankind and the answer to why we must all die. And this really is where it comes, this is, this is it right here. The reason that we all die is because Adam chose to rebel against God. And the act of rebellion took place first in his heart. And that's where all sin takes place. When we conceive it in our heart, when we think it over, she thought it over, he thought it over, they looked at what was going on, the Bible says that Eve was deceived, but Adam knew exactly what he was doing, saw that the tree was good, that it was a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. Later in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul lays out this fall of mankind. If you've got and you want to look with me, it's in Romans chapter 5, starting with uh, just verses 18 and 19. Acts, Romans 5, 18 and 19. And he reiterates this truth where he says, so then as through one transgression... And the word transgression is uh, translated uh, disobedience, means to persuade. Literally, it's a refusal to hear and refers to an inward, not an outward response. It says, then, through, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man, speaking of Adam, his disobedience, the many were made sinners... Even so, through the obedience of the one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the many will be made righteous. And so he goes on to explain that they did not listen to God. They were persuaded to not hear what he had to say. And then in Romans 5, verse 14, we're told that the offense, nevertheless death reigned from Adam and Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, which is a type of him who was to come. This offense or transgression meant to, to walk past the line. God drew a line, and they walked over the line. Inwardly, they had thought about it, and then outwardly, they ended up doing it. This is why it's so important that you and I take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Sin is always birthed from a heart that is contemplating doing evil. That's why Jesus said it's from the heart that precedes every evil action. There is no one who chooses to do something that hasn't already thought about it in their heart. They've already planned it. They've already thought about it. That's why when King David saw Bathsheba, it says that he saw her. He entertained it in his mind what it would be like to be with her. And then finally, he sent for her. And the progression is the same even today. And it always starts with, it's in our heart. You know, I've made up my mind, and now eventually I'll just do it. We said that a lot of times when marriages fail. When a person has already made up their mind that they don't want to be in a marriage anymore. It's just a matter of time before their actions follow their thought life, but they've already thought it through. They've already become convinced. And what the word is talking about here is that they don't listen to the persuasion of God to do what is right before God. God says, I hate divorce. God says, I want you to work through these things. God says, I want you to be kind and tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. But the person with the hard heart says, I've already made up my mind, and now I'm just looking for the right excuse to do what I've already decided to do. See, that act which caused the fall had already been decided in their heart. And notice the awareness of what happened once they fell into sin. In verses 7 and 8, we're told, And the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, 
And they knew that they were naked. And here we see a loss of holiness and innocence. They knew that they were naked. Think about this. Before that, they didn't know that. And as I was going through it and reading it, I was immediately reminded that all things are open and laid bare to him to whom we have to do. See, everything that goes on in our life is laid open and bare before God. And here, Adam and Eve, when they lost their innocence, when they lost their holiness, they became immediately aware of the fact that, you know what, God is perfect, and they were not. And the same is true when you and I sin today. We become aware of the fact that, you know what, things aren't what they were. We lose that sense of peace and joy in our relationship with God. They covered themselves, and they tried to hide their shame. I mentioned a friend that had left his wife and three children, and I spoke with him a week or so ago, and I said, how are things going? And he said, my life is a mess. It's a mess. And I said, that's great. (laughs) That's great. I've been praying that it'd be a mess. I've been praying that you'd have no joy. I've been praying that you'd have no peace with God. I've been praying that you would see, you know, the price that you're paying for this choice to do what's wrong before God. I'm glad that you're a mess. But it doesn't have to end there. Because as we'll see as we go through this in a minute, and and I'm going to save that for the next point, but see, there's a loss of, of holiness and innocence. There was also a loss of life. What God said was true. The day that you eat, you will surely die. And that day, death entered into the world. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will die. The reason that I am going to die is because what God says about me is true. That I was born into this world a sinner. Separated from God at enmity with God, in rebellion against God. You are going to die because what God says about you is true as well. And each and every day that God gives us is an act of mercy on his part so that you and I can make decisions today that will impact where we spend eternity. Every gray hair, every bald head, Every wrinkle, every ache and every pain is a nudge from God saying that you and I are on a short leash. That our time here is like that breath in a mirror. And what are you going to do about it? What decisions are you going to make today? What changes are you going to make in your life that will impact eternity The Bible says that we were all born into the world in a state of depravity. Psalm 51, 5, David said, He was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That we all have a genetic birth defect called sin nature, and we can't escape that. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that none of us are righteous. The Bible says that we're guilty before God, and that's that condemnation. See, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. For the world has been condemned already. When was our world condemned? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When was our world lost? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. When were you lost? When was I lost? When Adam chose to rebel against God, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. And all of us are in the same boat together. And you say, but that's not fair. I say, well, what's fair? You know, what's fair? You have eye color because of genetic predisposition. Our race is determined by genetic predisposition. When I was first diagnosed with cancer, 
The first thing that they do is they go through a list of, you know, are these things true in your family? Is there a history of cancer? Is there a history of heart disease? Is there a history of high cholesterol? Is there a history of, you know, they go through all of that. And you say, well, wait a minute. What's that have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you because it's in your genes. It's in your DNA. It's part of who you are. And you may not like it, but that's just the way it is. And so God says, Chuck, is there a history of sin in your family? Say, yes. (laughs) All right. And where did it start? Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. There's a loss of holiness. There's a loss of life. The penalty, the wages of sin is death. Before moving on, I want you to notice Adam and Eve also were aware of a loss of fellowship. And they heard the sound of the Lord God in verse 8, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They hid from God. They fled from his presence. And it's always a sign of those who are choosing to do wrong before God. If you want a very accurate sign of a person who has chosen to do what's wrong before God, take a believer who is plugged into a Bible study, plugged into a church, has godly Christian friends, and all of a sudden, they disappear. There's a flag. You might want to call them. You might want to see how they are. You might want to find out what's going on in their life. Because the first flag of a person who has chosen to turn their back on God is that they will hide from God and they will hide from God's people. There's nothing new under the sun. And that's exactly what happened here. They hid from God. Now notice the appeal of God to Adam and Eve. You know, God says to them, He called out to the man and said to him, where are you? Well, God knows where they are. He knows everything. He was trying to get them to acknowledge what was going on. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? He says, well, I was afraid because I was naked. Well, how did you know you were naked? He says, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? See, God was trying to get him to acknowledge what he had done was wrong before God. And he was saying, what did you do? And in order to be made right with God, all that God requires of you and I when we do wrong is that we'll acknowledge what we did was wrong. Confession. Confession means simply to agree with God that what he says about what we did is true. You lied. You cheated. You stole. You committed adultery. You were drunk. You were this, that, or the other thing. And in order to be restored to God... He says, we must confess our sin. Agree with God, you're right. I lied. I cheated. I stole. I committed adultery. I committed fornication. I'm wrong. You're right. Will you forgive me? And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God was trying to get Adam to acknowledge what he did was wrong. But instead of acknowledging what he did was wrong, look what he did instead. There was the attempt to justify his actions. Verse 12. And the man said, instead of saying, my bad, you're right. He said, the woman you gave me, she gave me, the tr- she gave me from the tree and I ate it. The first thing she did, he did was blame God. If you didn't give me this woman, and if you recall, you and I were doing just fine together. 
I know you had me name all the animals and stuff, and I got kind of lonely there. Everybody had somebody but me. But the next thing you know, hey, I woke up, and she was here. I'm just trying to make the best of it. (laughs) And so, it's your fault. Well, you know, there's a point where we all recognize that blaming God's not the smartest thing to do. And so the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, you know, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Adam first started blaming God. Then he realized blaming God probably wasn't a good thing. So he blamed the woman. It's her fault. And then the woman blamed the devil and said it was his fault. And the point of all of it is this. We can never be restored to God until we accept responsibility for our actions. Stop blaming everybody else for your choices. We live in a culture that it just, it's sickening at times to listen to people talk about why their lives are so messed up. And it all has to do with somebody else. Well, if you would have had my home life, my mom, my dad, my siblings, my aunt, my uncle, my this, my that. It, 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 you know, it's blaming everybody except the person that needs to take responsibility, and that is you. We all have a choice. And God says, I hold you accountable for your choices. But I come from a dysfunctional family. Let's get something straight. Genesis 3.6. We all come from a dysfunctional family. That's where it started. And it's been a mess ever since. And that's why we have to go back to the basics so that we understand that we're all a mess because Adam chose to rebel against God. And that's the price that we've all paid. Stop trying to justify wrong actions by blaming other people and take responsibility for yourself. And notice the answer that God gave the serpent to Adam. And he basically laid out the fact that, hey, you know what? You're going to suffer because of this. Because you have done this. Cursed are you more than all the cattle, speaking to the serpent, more than every beast of the field. And on your belly, think about this, there was a time where the serpent stood upright. And on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Every time you see a snake, it should remind you of Genesis 3. It should creep you out. I mean, I don't know too many people like snakes. But most people, they kind of get creepy over snakes. And there's a reason for that. And it goes back to the fall of man. Where God cursed the serpent and said, you know what, you're going to just suck on dust the rest of your life. He goes through and says, and between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he will bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And it's a confrontation between the Lord Jesus Christ and the devil that that was played out at the crucifixion. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and in pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, and you've eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of the living and the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the reason I want to bring this up is because as we go through this series, we're going to notice that there's a day coming where this curse will be absolutely lifted for all of eternity. And life will go full circle to what God had originally designed for you and I as his creation to enjoy. And that his presence is the fullness of joy. 
and his creation will be to be enjoyed as it was before the fall of man. We're going to go full circle in this series, but we need to understand what happened when we fell into sin. And the last thing, which is just the most amazing, loving thing, the access to the tree of life was denied by a loving God. Notice this in verses 22 through 24. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God said, I don't want you to live forever in a state of sin. I don't want you to live forever alienated from me. I don't want you to live in in a sense of loss of holiness, a loss of life spiritually, and a loss of fellowship. If Adam would have ate from the tree of life, he would have lived eternally in all of us, eternally separated from everything that God has for us that we'll see as we go through this series. And God says, because I love you, I will not allow that to happen. And he drove him out of the garden so that he could not eat from the tree of life. We would have never experienced physical death if they had eaten from the tree of life. But we have never experienced the abundant life eternal life that God has to offer us. In closing, the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Spiritual separation from God and physical death. But in contrast to death, he said the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, those who have not trusted in Christ, we're going to look at next time we get together and that's the dark side of death what that person has to look forward to the moment they die but for now the question is this have you crossed over from death to life by acknowledging your sin I am guilty have you turned from sin which is repentance have you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, that he is alive today and welcomes all who come to him, you will find out as we go through this series, there is no other way to get to heaven but through him. Have you trusted in Jesus? If not, today is the day. Because you don't know if that vapor is up today for you. And I don't know. It's appointed for man to die. And I don't know when your appointment is. But I'll guarantee you this. If you, like David said, God, show me the end of my life. And he said, the end of your life is today at 11 o'clock. Would you turn from sin? Would you trust in Christ? Would you believe that he died for you? Would you believe he rose again from the dead? Would you receive him today as your savior? Or will you keep putting it off because you think you have tomorrow and next week and next month and next year to think about it? That's presuming upon the grace of God. And if I were you, I'd pray now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glimpse of truth from your word. And my heart is heavy for those who have never come to fully understand that there's no other way to heaven but through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, my prayer now is for those who are listening that aren't sure of their relationship, that they would just pray a simple prayer from their heart because, God, all things are laid open and bare to you to whom we have to answer. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. I'm a sinner because Adam sinned. And because it's a genetic defect in my life, I was conceived in iniquity. And I demonstrate that truth by the fact that I have violated so many of your laws.
God, I am a sinner. And if I died today, I'd go to hell. And God, I don't want that. And I turn from my sin. And I turn to the cross. And I trust that Jesus died on the cross for me. That he rose again from the dead and he is alive today and he hears my prayer. I believe when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, to the best of my understanding, I trust in Jesus as my Savior. I acknowledge him as the only way to find forgiveness, and he's the only way that I'll ever get to heaven. Lord, I thank you, and I receive him as my Savior today, even now. In 1952, a gal named Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off the coast of uh, California in the Catalina Islands. And she was determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. And the weather was foggy and it was chilly. And she could hardly see the boats that were accompanying her. And she swam for 15 hours. And when she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her that she was close and that she could make it. But finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was asked to be pulled out. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than half a mile away. And at a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore... I would have made it. And I thought of those words. I think I could have, if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. For believers, that shore is Jesus. And being with him in the place that he promised to prepare for us, where we will live with him forever. The shore that we look for is the new heavens and the new earth. And if we can see through the fog and picture our eternal home in our mind's eye, it will comfort us, it will energize us, and it will give us the endurance that we need to fulfill the assignment that God has called us to do today. My prayer is that this series will help us see the shore and motivate us to live a life that's pleasing to God in light of eternity. Amen.